Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program about all sorts of things to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have new stories including car sales looking more closely at the numbers, another review of the railways but we don't need more of the same, undertaking the first pole-to-pole car trip and doing it in an EV and going to the drive-in in an electric vehicle. We have a quick road test of the Kia Seltos. We get listeners' comments about their motoring history and some of their reflections on the posts we put on social media. And finally, in this week's feature, we speak to Andrew Miller, a Canadian-based expert who had just given a keynote speech at the Urban Development Institute of Australia's National Conference in Perth. His speech was titled Climate Change, Mobility and the Future of City Building. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au with links to the socials. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au with links to social media and podcasts. And you can always record a brief message on our answering service by dialing 028003-4295. This program was first broadcast on the 8th of April 2023 and we began with the news. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries have reported vehicle sales for March 2023 and they show that the volumes are down overall by 4% but are still just ahead of 2022 for the total three months of the first quarter. The top three selling cars are now all Utes, with the Isuzu D-Max now in third place behind Ford's Ranger and Toyota's Hilux. But this is a sign of shifting brand preferences. The total market for utilities is down for March and year-to-date, especially in two-wheel drives. The Ford Ranger has started the year well, as opposed to its great rival, the Hilux, But the big improvers in percentage terms in the ute market are the Chinese brands GWM, Great Wall Motors, LDV and Sanyong. In absolute numbers, they are still behind the front runners, but they are sprinting to catch up. SUVs continue their solid growth, but least of all in the private market. In percentage terms, they are booming back into the rental market. Medium-sized SUVs is the biggest winning segment. Electric vehicle sales are up, but hybrids are down. The decline in hybrids would be a direct result in the significant slump in Toyota's share of the market. However, sales of plug-in hybrids, that is vehicles that can potentially run more typical short trips on battery power alone, but still use the petrol engine on long trips, have increased significantly in percentage terms in the SUV market this year. The new New South Wales government has been quick to establish some formal reviews into key transport areas. One is a review of the railways in that state. Review of large organisations in New South Wales and around the world have, in too many cases, led to little more than management restructures that change a few titles and reporting mechanisms and produce press releases full of vague statements. They fail to build the essential foundations necessary to understand real needs and empower a wide range of people to implement them. One of the current trendy notions of management in government departments in states around Australia has been to employ managers with little technical expertise or awareness. 
While in some cases this may not always be a problem, the limitations are compounded by the significant reduction in technical staff within government. This reinforces policy development based on fundamentalism, populist and or political thinking, rather than practical applications. With a paucity of in-house expertise, the process then has to rely on outside consultants. The Overdrive team is pushing for the following for a new approach. Creating a foundation on data rather than on opinion. Ensuring that there is the right amount of the right professionals for content-aware management. Develop modern ways to analyse our options. Transport for New South Wales computer modelling is seen as being archaic and there is a belief that it is kept so that the organisation and politicians can control the narrative they tell, which includes getting research to support preconceived ideas. Also, there needs to be a dynamic approach to working with academia and a communication approach that works towards an informed democracy, not just convincing people about the decisions you have already made. Chris and Julie Ramsey have started their pole-to-pole expedition. Starting at the 1823 North Magnetic Pole, they plan to travel 27,000 kilometres through North, Central and South America, aiming ultimately to reach the world's most remote place, Antarctica's South Pole, in December. No vehicle has ever completed the journey between these extremes of the globe, and the pole-to-pole team are undertaking the challenge in a 100% electric vehicle. They are driving a Nissan Aria that has undergone some modifications. Most notably, the suspension has been lifted and wheel arches extended to accommodate huge 39-inch tyres that will help the car float on deep snow and sea ice. No modifications were made to the Aria's battery and powertrain, including leaving, as standard, Nissan's E-Force electric all-wheel control technology. They will tow an innovative renewable energy unit, which includes an extendable wind turbine and foldable solar panels. This prototype will take advantage of expected high winds and long daylight hours, particularly in the Arctic regions. Chris and Julie will take breaks from driving in order to get enough charge into their battery. Car companies are searching for ways to popularise the concept of electric vehicles. In partnership with Moving In Car, Polestar, the Swedish electric car brand, will host an EV drive-in cinema event in Sydney for four nights on the rooftop of the Entertainment Quarter car park and showcasing some of the latest Hollywood blockbusters. Moviegoers who drive pure electric vehicles from any brand will have exclusive access to the event, which will feature battery generators powering the session, but of course not charging the cars. There will be a range of snacks and drinks available, including pizza and bottomless popcorn, but perhaps they might demonstrate a more holistic concept of mobility if the snacks were delivered to the cars via active transport, that is, young people on roller skates. Electric cars have one great advantage for drive-in movies. They can keep the heaters running without noise and air pollution from the vehicle's motor although this could remove the excuse for the need to cuddle up to keep warm. And that has been the news. Time for a quick road test of the Kia Seltos, 
The Kia Seltos was first launched onto our market in 2019. It is a small SUV, which is not the smallest class. That is called the light category. The small SUV category is a very competitive segment with 20 vehicles in the under $45,000 part and 14 in the over $45,000 group. It has become even more competitive with Toyota launching the Corolla Cross and a re-entry into the market by the Nissan Qashqai. Chinese cars are in the first two places in sales so far this year, with the MG ZS leading the pack, followed by the Haval Jolion. Kia launched a new Seltos model in the last quarter of 2022, which was a significant upgrade. In sales, the Seltos had a bad start to this year, but March 2023 sees it rocketing back in the sales numbers. For March, it held third place. It comes in four trim lines and two powertrains, which are a 2-litre naturally aspirated front-wheel drive and a 1.6-litre turbocharged all-wheel drive. The good points... It's got Kia quality and it's got great room for a small SUV. Our 6'3 road tester fitted in quite well in both the front and the back positions. It looks good without being flamboyant, not wild design. It does not look small or cutesy or weird. Even the front wheel drive grips well in the wet. It has good features including air vents and USB plugs in the rear and it has a full size spare tyre. And the bad? Well, road noise is a bit high. Not bad, not stridently intrusive, but noticeable, especially if you have been in a quieter car. But the ugly? It has a piercing beep warning if you go over what it thinks the speed limit is. But it doesn't differentiate time-dependent speed limits, such as school zones, and your speed is based on their dial, which is about 4 kilometres too high. You can turn it off, but it takes four steps on the screen and it resets so that you have to do it every time you start the car. And when you do turn off the beeping, it removes the speed limit indicator on the dash in front of the driver. The Kia Seltos, which to my mind has a name like a mint lolly, starts at 29500 and goes up to 44900 plus on-road costs. You're listening to Overdrive. Our home station, 99.3 FM, is celebrating its 40th anniversary, and we are asking you for some memories of motoring back over that period, what cars you had, what cars you lusted over, and or what cars were in the family. You can leave any comments on our answering machine at 028003-4295 if you are overseas at plus 61. Or you can send an email to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. Your experiences don't need to be positive. G'day David, Alan from Artarman here. I just thought I'd let you know that uh, back in the day, in the mid-70s, mid to late 70s, I had an Alfa Romeo Alfa Sud. The, the small Alpha, and it was uh, probably the most unreliable car I ever owned, having come from Holden's, and it had a most annoying trait that when I was driving to the snow, as I did regularly in those days, it would stop in about the same place on a hill near Mittagong on every occasion in the early hours of the morning. As it turned out, the cause was icing in the carburetor because the air cleaner had a setting for summer and winter 
and my helpful Alfa Romeo mechanic maintained that there was no such thing as winter in Australia and so he left it on the summer setting. But a person who has had great input to the station had a vehicle that is not considered a classic, but it did him well. Hi, David. This is Andrew Reynolds, a.k.a. The Bear, formerly of The Drive Show on FM 99.3, as well as station manager from time to time. Thinking about memories of cars from about 40 years ago, I remember my first car was a Morris 1500. I bought it off my uncle for the princely sum of $200. Nearly killed me because he was fixing the brake liner with brace and it had a few holes in it, which let me down one day going down a hill. Other than that, it was a powerful little vehicle, great suspension, but it did have a tendency of not driving in the wet. Not so much that it wouldn't start, it's just that if you were driving somewhere through a puddle, it just stopped there for you, which if you lived in an area of drought, probably not a big problem. We have also been posting some stories on social media. One was a story of a colleague who decided to get a few bumps repaired on his E-Type Jag. He was prompted to this because he dropped a bottle of champagne on the bonnet. Not to worry, the bottle didn't break, thank goodness. He also decided to have the car detailed with great results. We have included some pictures of the car with a few of our colleagues looking on, having a chat, and the dog who is clearly not interested in this fine bit of machinery. If you want to see it on Instagram, go to instagram.com and look for the site called Cars Transport Culture. Now, many have coveted the E-Type Jaguar and Graham rang in to reflect on his own situation. Hi, David. I'm Graham from Sydney. Concerning the E-Type Jag, I always wanted one, but I used to go caving on bush roads every second weekend, so E-Types were impractical as I was hopeless in the bush. I had the same thoughts about girlfriends at the time. The fancy ones freaked out in the bush away from toilets, etc. Style and colours were important back in the early 70s. I bought flared trousers back then, as that's all there were in the shops. I even bought purple ones to show I was not too straight-laced. I'm glad the bright orange and purple cars of a day didn't stick around too long. We have reached over 26,000 people on Facebook and some of their comments were Mark Foster said, I hope it was an expensive bottle of champagne. I did reply that I don't think it was very expensive because the person had to watch his budget because he has to keep maintaining the car. Brian Ritchie said, Champa bottle dropped on the bonnet. It's actually a write-off. I am, however, willing to take it off his hands. No charge, of course. What a generous soul. Kimberly Carruthers said, I know a bloke who sold his E-Type on the day he was delivering it to his new owner. He totaled it and his insurance had run out the day before. Ron Carl said, It's the same colour as his first car, a 1967 Type 3 VW. I did ask him if he had ever dropped a Stein beer glass on the bonnet. But perhaps the most telling comment came from our road tester, Evan Jones, who said, G'day, Evan here, concerning the dog looking disappointed about the brightly polished E-Type. It's obviously miffed at the thought of having to pee on the wheels all over again. Other posts on our social media sites include, we put up some pictures of a Lexus LC430, two-door coupe I saw. I don't like the look, but they were a classic work of art in that some love it and some hate it. It cost a relative lot of money and has very limited practical use. The general opinion of the responses was that most people hated it. 
Our Instagram site is Cars Transport Culture. And the phone number you can ring and leave a message is 028003-4295. Or you can send us an email to feedback at drivenmedia.com.au. Past programs are also on the Driven Media site. And we've got some more Vox Pops from listeners coming up next week. You're listening to Overdrive. Around the world, there has developed a strong focus on urban function and design and an oft-used expression of future-proofing cities and their development. In Australia, we have seen governments give new names to some ministries to focus on city planning. Urban Development Institute of Australia are holding their national conference in Perth. Andrew Miller, a Canadian-based senior expert, has just delivered a keynote speech and he joins us on the line now. You were the lead in mobility for Google's smart city firm Sideworks Lab. Is it city planning now a more obvious part of profitability, not only building it, but operating it? So, yeah, I was, I did work for Sidewalk Labs. I was not the overall mobility lead. I was the Toronto mobility lead. I had good colleagues who I was still friends with in Manhattan who were uh, also part of it and a, and a very big part of it. But, uh, uh, yeah, I was part of that work. And it is an interesting, I had occasion to observe today that um, if you look around the world, Sidewalk wanted to build a new neighborhood in Toronto. Unfortunately, from my, by my lights, that didn't happen. But the government of Saudi Arabia wants to build a new city, Neom, uh, in their territory. Uh, China wants to build a few new uh, cities in their domain. They've already got one under in works at, in Shenzhen at Tencent City. Uh, various tech millionaires want to build new cities in the United States. Elon Musk wants to build one in the American Southwest. Mark Lore wants to build one in the American Appalachians. Uh, and Toyota wants to build one in Greater Tokyo on the slopes of Mount Fuji at Woven City. So this there's an urge right now to lots of different parties want to build new neighborhoods or even whole new cities. And it's an interesting move, comes from a few places, but one of them would certainly have to be a recognition that existing cities have got, are, are so dedicated to the status quo and not disrupting the current situation for current stakeholders and owners that it's getting harder and harder, if not impossible, to build new things, to build new housing, to build new transit lines. There's too many, the, the system is designed to either prevent these things or to make them take a great deal of time and a lot of money such that it's just not happening. So I think the lesson here for policymakers is to say there, there wouldn't be so many people trying to build new cities if we had not failed to accommodate growth and change in the ones that we have uh, and to consider how they might uh, address the uh, uh, allow our cities to grow again and i presume every one of those musk etc even toyota and so on would love to see that as an example of being extremely progressive not just uh, in the case of say a car company building uh, uh, supply side car uh, vehicles no it's certainly um the idea is not to just take an existing city 
hit control C and control V and make a new one. That is unworthy of anyone's ambition. The idea is, is if you're going to start from a clean slate and actually get to build things, let's build the right things. Let's build uh, mm. platforms that will enable future growth. I mean, it is telling that um, you know the the neon vision in Saudi Arabia is quite explicit that it's centered on high speed rail and air delivery. Uh, the woven vision is being kept. Toyota is keeping that close to its chest, what it's trying to do. But uh, I know some of the people working on that, and it isn't saying too much to say that Toyota wants to use the city, among other things, as a place to think about what new mobility might be. What Elon Musk wants to do in the in the American Southwest, that's anyone's guess. I will, uh, I'd be foolish to try and guess his intentions. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's very much uh, like transit-oriented development will help future-proof cities, yet we, we, I think, in Australia have been cut very, uh, caught very much in supply side from almost rail fundamentalism. Uh, I once asked the CEO of a road authority if obesity in children was a key measure, would we have a different transport system? Is there a better... Are we aiming for better key measures than we have in the past, which has just been speed on roads or even just the number of people on trains and buses, which can lead to very long journeys and you know a, a lot of time being spent there? Better key measures? So it's true that historically our transit operators come out of uh, old school rail or logistics operators and I don't want to tar them all with the same brush. I'll just say that there's been a, an, a very prominent minority who regard their job as moving vehicles quickly and reliably. Mm. And the idea that they're you know helping people conduct trips is that's someone else's issue. My job is just get a train from A to B. Mm. If we are thinking holistically, we recognize that what our, we're trying to do is to not move vehicles, but to move people. And so then the question is, which people? It's like, yeah, healthy people, we would want to incorporate a certain amount of walking into the trip for their own, for, for, for health reasons, but not everyone can walk. Uh, and there's others, oh, there's children, there's the elderly, there's people with mobility issues. We need to build a system that accommodates everybody, including people who are, and, and, and if we accommodate everyone, I think that a lot of those goals about health will will take care of themselves. Uh, if you're building a system where you don't have to drive point to point, there will be walking built in, more so than in a, in a car-based system. As to your other point, uh, yeah, it is a shame when people have to spend hours and hours of their day in long commutes. But the reason that that happens is because there isn't enough housing for them closer to where they work. So the problem is just to... Not not ban long trips, but make it easier for people to live closer to where they work. Yeah, that's a, a far more holistic and, and across the board. I'll come to that. But you did mention Saudi talking about freight as well, didn't I you? I did. That it wasn't just movement of people. We we are coming more to grips with freight transport, but then technology is offering us far more solutions. It certainly is. One of the things I've just written a white paper about uh, automated driving and what it means and how governments can come to grips with this technology, how they can change the policy and regulatory system. This is any government anywhere can change their policy and regulatory system to allow automated driving 
to come quickly and safely. And one of the observations I made there, I'm certainly not the only person saying this, is that automated driving is going to first come to uh, trucking, long distance movement of goods by road. And the potential for automated trucks, the, the reason it's going to come to trucking first is because the, the, the place a robot is happiest is a controlled environment. Hmm. And the closest controlled environment in a transport system is an inner city highway. So it is very easy to imagine. It's already begun to happen in Texas that cities get uh, storage depots on their outskirts and human drivers bring them to these depots. And then an automated truck does the so-called middle mile, the drayage of goods from one depot in city A to another depot in city B with human drivers taking over and doing the first to the last mile. Uh, this has got the potential to uh, move even more goods by truck while addressing the ongoing shortage of truck drivers. Uh, and if we can make sure that all those robotic trucks are also zero emission trucks, we can dramatically increase the throughput of goods without imposing a carbon burden, maybe even reducing our carbon burden. You focused uh, very much on then horses for courses and understanding the complexity, but then being able to target or understand where the first applications might be. Mm -hmm. I think you used the expression that uh, the popular uh, expression autonomous vehicles is misleading in a way. Is That's covering what you're saying there, that we haven't by any means got anywhere, anytime by autonomy. Yeah, my report is deliberately called, uh, it's my report, I, I keep saying mine. I co-wrote it with my friend, uh, Bern Grush, who is a, a noted expert in his own right. But we use, we prefer the term automated driving to autonomous vehicles because Partly it's because we want to avoid the hype that has surrounded this. There's so many people saying so many outlandish and ridiculous things that it's brought the whole field into disrepute. So it, it might be foolish of us, but we hope that by using careful and precise language, we can restore attention to reason, uh, take away some of the charlatanry that has uh, surrounded this. An autonomous vehicle literally would be a car that when you got in it, it would drive you where it thought you needed to go. <laughs> it's making the choices. But an automated driving system is one that drive, you are, uh, the driving task has been automated, but you're still in charge. You are saying, I want to go to this place. And then it does the work of taking you there. So very, we use uh, automated, I think is better than autonomous in most cases, we've yet to see computer systems that are capable of making our choices for us. Although I'm watching what's going on with chat GPT and AI with great interest, it may be that uh, autonomous will be the right word very shortly. That does raise actually an unintended consequence. An autonomous vehicle can, of course, travel without anybody in it. Therefore, one of the great concerns of this technology might be a huge pressure on increase in travel. Yet you, you said earlier, of course, that we want to think about those who need it the most, those that are elderly, perhaps the disabled. This unintended consequence, do we need to highlight those more to make sure that the development is going in the right direction rather than in a populist direction that may be taken up uh, leading to unintended consequences? So my report is deliberately aimed at what regulators should be doing now. Uh, so I 
we don't indulge in a lot of work of well, what's going to happen in the future, these sorts of unintended consequences. But it doesn't mean we haven't thought about them. It just means that that wasn't the focus of the report. Uh, the two things that I'd say about the scenario you imagine are is there absolutely is a policy response that government could make to solve this problem, which would be uh, uh, what we might call in colloquially a deadheading charge. Uh, in, in transit, if a, a train is rolling and it has no passengers, uh, it's said to be deadheading. Uh, and it's always to be avoided in freight or logistics or transport. If a vehicle is moving, you should be moving uh, a paying customer, people or goods, as part of it. So you could imagine a city saying that uh, for every kilometer a vehicle travels, it has to pay uh, a fraction of a cent. But for every vehicle that it travels without a passenger, it must pay two fractions of a cent to create a price signal to avoid this sort of outcome. And that was Andrew Miller, who is a global expert in urban planning, and he works for the Hatch organisation. There's more in that interview, and we will hear segments in weeks to come. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan, Andrew and Graham for their recorded comments. Andrew Miller and Mark Wesley for their help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or ring and leave a message on plus 6102 8003 4295. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.